We start in Washington, D.C., where in the last hour we have seen some truly extraordinary scenes unfolding. Monocle's news editor, Chris Chermack, has this. Absolutely extraordinary scenes we have to tell our listeners about before getting back to our program. The Capitol in the U.S., the the U.S. Capitol where Congress sits, the Senate and House, has been stormed by protesters. They have swarmed the outside of the building, but also the inside. This comes just a few hours after Donald Trump essentially egged these protesters on to go to the Capitol to try and stop the certification process uh, for U.S. President-elect Joe Biden. This is effectively what has happened. The certification process has been stopped. The building is on lockdown. Uh, senators and representatives and staffers have been confined to their offices as police try and clear the building of protesters. I really never thought something like this would happen in the United States. Absolutely extraordinary scenes. And of course, we're going to have to keep monitoring this uh, as it goes on in the next coming hours and days. Tom? Thanks, Chris. And we'll have the latest from DC and reaction from there and around the world into Thursday here on Monocle 24. Do be sure to tune in to The Globalist from 7am London time for the latest. But now on with our panel. The latest on a historic day in the US state of Georgia. One of the world's largest tech giants unionises and rebranding a complicated legacy. We unpack the CIA's new visuals. Monocle's editors tackle those topics today on the late edition here on Monocle 24. Hello and a warm welcome to the late edition. I'm Tom Edwards, joined here in Studio One by Monocle's culture editor Chiara Rimella. Hello, Tom. And down the line from his home elsewhere in the capital by Monocle's news editor, Christopher Chermack. Welcome both to the programme. Good evening to you, Chris. Good evening, Tom. We're well into the new year by now. It's been pretty eventful already. Before we dive into today's news agenda, what are you both most looking forward to this year? Kiara, I guess something on the cultural beat, perhaps, or just the end of all of this madness? Uh, Well, of course. I mean... As much as the cultural landscape has been wildly disrupted by the pandemic, thankfully we've had some releases to get us through the year. Uh, There is one that I'm particularly looking forward to later in the year. Uh, It was supposed to come out in 2020. It didn't. And I've been waiting for it since. It's a French dispatch by Wes Anderson. Uh, You know, the trailer was circulated amongst Monaco staff. I guess like, you know more than a year ago now. That feels like about 10 years ago. Yeah, right. Um, And I feel like we've all been awaiting it so long. So that would be my cinematic uh, pick. And, And as for the rest... I've I've got to say, I used to constantly complain about having to go to all these art fairs around the world and just travelling here and travelling there and all the rest of it. And I kind of miss it. I really do. Your, so. prayer, your prayers were answered and it's an old, the old <laughs> adage of be careful what you, what you wish for. Um, Chris Chermack, what about, what about for yourself? Anything uh, you're looking forward to? Have you, did you undertake any New Year's resolutions? Have you broken them already? Well, I don't know about New Year's resolutions, but I was going to uh, focus for me. Uh, I often focus on travel, but in this case on a sort of personal personal political travel note, I'm hoping, you know, at some point this year to be able to make it back to the United States. We'll be talking about the U.S. politically. It's been quite a year. I've been there many years in the past uh, at some some of the key political moments, whether it was Obama back in 2008 um, or also Donald Trump's election. And it was a shame not to, you know, be a part of that this year. Um, So I'm hoping to get there. Uh, when it is safe to travel again. 
Well, Chris, let me let me take you to the US right now, in a way, uh, because we're going to start in the US state of Georgia. Of course, this runoff vote held yesterday has decided effectively the political future of the country. The victory of two Democrats does tilt the balance of Senate power out of the hands of Mitch McConnell and has huge implications, of course, for Joe Biden's presidency. It also marks a key change in voting habits and demographics in what was hitherto an assuredly red state, at least most of the time. Earlier today, I spoke to Eugene Scott, political reporter at The Washington Post, for more. The turnout uh, on the left was far significant, uh, far more significant than the turnout on the right, which I think uh, was a teaching moment for many people on the Republican side of the aisle. Uh, It appears that when President Trump is not on the ballot, his supporters perhaps not may not show up for him at the same rate that they did when he actually is. But what's also important to note is that uh, the Democratic Party is far more diverse than people realize, even in southern conservative states that historically have gone red. That was Eugene Scott talking to me earlier. And Chris Schumacher, I'll come to you first of all. What what do you make of the latest today? Obviously, it's been quite a fast-moving situation, but it looks like this is a pretty meaningful defeat, really, uh, for the Republicans. What what does this mean for the GOP as we move forward? Well, it has been a fast-moving day, uh, Tom, as you say. I was talking about it uh, on The Globalist this morning and looking at it at the end of the day. It does look like, as we expected at the time, that the Democrats are going to pick up both of these seats. And, you know, as was mentioned there, this is a very significant shift. Um, Let's say in in my mind, you know, in the short term in particular over the next couple of years, because it means that Joe Biden has the ability to at least get a bigger chunk of his agenda. He has a chance to get his agenda through Congress over the next couple of years, at least until, you know, the next congressional election where things could change again. And I mean, in terms of the GOP, um, I thought the comments there uh, were from Eugene were interesting. I would, uh, you know, I really do wonder where this is going to go uh, coming coming forward. I think for both parties, this has been such a unique and special election because of the personality of Donald Trump, right? And so it, we really need to see for the Republicans where they're going to go, as was mentioned there, without that personality. Can they hold together the coalition that he seemed to have in the sense that he was able to bring along new voters into the party uh, who, who backed his very nationalistic anti-immigration stance, this sort of alt-right, as it was called. He sort of brought in a lot of, to be honest, you know, new voters, if you will, into the party, even working class voters who voted for Democrats before. Will those people stay with the Republican Party? Um, And at the same time, traditional Republicans that still felt they had to vote for Donald Trump. That's what we saw, I think, in November, which is why he still, even if he lost, got a record number of votes or the second most, you know, number of votes for a president ever. It's hard to see if that coalition is really going to hold and who who else would be able to hold that kind of coalition together if you go back to a more traditional Republican? Well, then you lose all of this. Uh, this other aspect, this sort of raw aspect of the Republican Party that has developed under Donald Trump. Um, I would say on the other side, though, it is also interesting because I think the Democrats as well, frankly, coalesced under anyone who wasn't Donald Trump. And so as was mentioned there, yes, 
The left came out even more in Georgia, as they did in the November presidential election. But they really did that as a repudiation of Donald Trump. And it will be interesting to see, even in just two years of Joe Biden, if he is not able to get too many of his policies through. And it has to be said that at the end of the day, yes, he now might have, you know, he'll have a 50-50 split Senate. That means he'll be able to get some through, but he's not going to be that tremendously progressive, tremendously left-wing, if you will, in what he's going to get across. His most ambitious agenda will still be, you know, halted by the more moderate wing of the party. Will that be enough for progressives like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and others who kind of are leading voices of the of the further left, if you will, in their party, Will they be voting for, for Joe Biden or will they be voting for Democrats again in 2022 uh, or will they be disillusioned by that point? So really, uh, to be honest, there are questions for both parties here in terms of the coalition that they will be able to hold together once, you know, once if, if I should say, if Donald Trump is out of the picture. Of course, for Republicans, the question, too, is whether Donald Trump will actually be out of the picture. Um, not only because, of course, he's challenging the election results today, and that's another whole side issue that we won't get into again uh, just here about, you know, Congress and the Senate and House, uh, some of them challenging uh, President-elect Joe Biden and whether to certify his result. But, you know, beyond the inauguration, whatever happens, uh, we don't really know what kind of role Donald Trump is going to play. But he's certainly still going to be a force. Uh, absolutely. And I, I do think this idea of all of the sort of election chicanery that uh, he was talking about, all of this bluster about uh, voter fraud, uh, you know, it looks like that whole GOP turnout in Georgia but below the, the waterline, which is really interesting. Kira, let me ask you something, though, about, well, this idea of a, a kind of an iconic figure dragging a party down down with him and already people are talking you know chris has alluded to it there this idea of what trumpism looks like going forwards um i know i've asked you this before in this context looking back to the sort of berlusconi era in your own in your own motherland but does it do more damage than just the sort of weight of this funny nostalgia about the recent past and do you think there's anything that american political strategists or just observers of all of this ongoing com- complexity stateside could learn from looking at the the impact that Berlusconi had even once he left high office. I wish I could say that there's something to learn. But actually, if you look at Italian politics and the way that it dealt with, you know, the loss of Berlusconi from a political point of view, you will find that, just as Chris was saying, much of the left defined itself during the 90s and noughties in opposition to Berlusconi. You know, the left was anti-Berlusconism. And once that, you know, purpose left... um, it, the left really found it very, very hard to find a figure to, you know, rally around. And uh, and that has been felt for years and years and years. And apart from Matteo Renzi, who was a bit of a outlier in his own way, when you look at it, even just now, you know, Giuseppe Conte is the first prime minister who is, to be noted, is not even a professional politician, but is a lawyer who was put into the position because the parties couldn't really agree on someone. He's the first person who's kind of found his feet with political, um, you know, approval ratings from the country. Uh, you look at what happened to Berlusconi, um, the party that he founded and, you know, le- led for many years, Forza Italia, 
could never find a successor after him, which is why it plummeted, uh, you know, after his, I guess, his loss of importance in in the Italian, uh, you know, landscape. He's still now very much active, though Forza Italia is a minority, you know, player in, in Italian politics right now. But I think the fundamental difference between the Italian system and the American system is that the Italian is not just a two-party system, right? So the lack of Berlusconi did open up the space for new parties to come to the fore. You look at the rise of the populists in the movement five stars. You look at the, the, the rise of the real kind of hard right of Matteo Salvini. These are all people that were able to come to the fore because of this lack of substance. And, you know, I I wonder in the US what that means and whether the Republican Party will genuinely have to completely rethink itself and really just change its identity quite radically because clearly, you know, Trump wasn't a blip, <laughs> you know. And is it possible for the Republicans to go back just to what they were before? As Chris was saying right then... I don't think that's really possible right now. Uh, well, let's uh, stay in the United States for our next story. Workers at tech giant Alphabet, Google's parent company, of course, have unionised, or a small number of them. The white-collar wonks conspired rather secretly to establish their 230-strong minority union. Earlier, the digital anthropologist Rahaf Harfush explained why the employees had taken this step. I think that they are trying to protect each other and to help each other because in the past, Google has fired people that have acted as prominent voices of activism within the company. So to me, I wouldn't be surprised if eventually down the line issues around wages did get on the agenda, especially since not just full-time Google employees, but actually contractors can be a part of this union. But for right now, I think it speaks to the moment that we're in right now, you know, end of 2020, beginning of 2021, that says, hey, we're grappling with the reality that the technologies that we're building are having a fundamental impact on society, on elections, on ethics, on human rights, on civil liberties. And the fact that the people that are building these technologies are starting to realize that, to me, is a really good step in the right direction. Chiara, there's a a tradition, a strong, relatively recent tradition of activism amongst workers at at Google. In the past, they've walked out in protests in opposition at defence contracts that the company is working, uh, work done for the Chinese government, so on. Is that kind of uh, demonstration of, you know, a a, a political uh, position, is that inevitable when you have, you know, potentially a very highly educated workforce and they are engaging in some, how to describe it, you know, ethically dubious work. It's inevitable this kind of tension will arise, right? Well, I think it's interesting when you think about the idea that we have about unionization and the idea that we have about, you know, trade unions and the role that they play in companies. Um, when you think about issues like pay, like, you know, fundamental workers' rights, often the protests and the demonstrations that happen are because people are too desperate and they have no other way of going about things other than unionizing. In this case, um, many of the complaints that we are discussing right now, though, you know, the, the, the union that the Google workers have announced that it does also purport to, you know, to address issues of pay and, and diversity, um, it's, it's, you know, at least mostly talked about in its role around issues of ethics. Uh, And I think that has got to do with the fact that um, you can't 
build company culture just on an idea of kind of paternalism where you give you know your workers a little bit of a you know treat <laughs> and 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 kind of hope that that's going to make up for everything else i think the way that we have looked at the way at, at, at the way that google has built its company culture is largely you know correlated to large salaries you know we don't hear that often of complaints in terms of pay from google employees and you know perks of all kinds um but then it's it's only when you kind of get out of that mentality that you realize that the ethics actually and and the fundamental rights matter just as much as you know day-to-day life well, I think that's really interesting. And Chris Chumat, maybe I'll put that point to you. It's funny that these sorts of companies uh, broadcast a lot of very sort of progressive messaging. They talk about the how future-proof they are, and they talk about how futuristic they are, indeed, in how they do their business. But this seems kind of, in some ways, almost reassuringly that this is a very new, powerful, huge company, but it's grappling with very recognisable, pretty old-fashioned problems, right? It is. I mean, I think in some ways it's not surprising, to, to be honest, because I think the more, uh, you know, even a tech company, uh, if, you know, the, the the longer it gets into its lifespan, the more it becomes a traditional company, right? And the more it, it ends up having the sort of traditional problems that, that any other company has had. And so I think in some ways, in, in my mind, that's kind of what you're seeing. You're also seeing this tension that, you know, as Google has grown, you could argue its executives have become a little more business minded, a little more conservative. Uh, you know, they've they've shed perhaps some of that sort of uh, uh, <laughs> hippie would be the wrong word, but you know the kind of things you associate with sort of young tech employees. And the leadership, you know, has 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 taken on a bit more of a business mind that that uh, that puts them at odds with some of their employees. So in that sense, I don't think it's that surprising that this is the moment where you're going to see uh, unions develop in a in a company like that. It is interesting. At the same time, I just say that you know this it's it's very different um, compared to you know I, I spent a lot of time in Germany uh, where there were. Uh, you know, a very, very strong tradition of unions working within companies um, and outside of companies and, and have always played a very strong strategic role um, within companies. This is a little different because, you know, in the case of Google, as I understand it, at least for now, it's about 200 employees. It's sort of working outside of any major structure, uh, as, it, as it were. So they're hoping basically that, you know, by, by developing numbers that Google will essentially listen to them. Uh, that's, that's very different, of course, from what you have, uh, say, in Germany, but also, say, you used to have in traditional, you know, auto workers unions in the U.S. as well, where they're really an integral part of the decision-making process of a company, you know, and that's, uh, I experienced that very much in Germany, how whenever it came to wage negotiations, but even strategic policy decisions, the future directions of a company, employees were involved, unions were involved, they had a seat at the table, they were on the boards um, of companies. So they really played a very integral role. Managers would pull their hair out to some extent as a result of that. Um, but it also led, you know, arguably to a more cooperative relationship, I think, in Germany between employer and employee. And so it'll be interesting to see how Google, in that sense, chooses to 
interact with this new union. Their initial words were kind of saying, we're still going to choose to, you know, have a direct relationship with our employees, uh, which, which to me was a bit of a sign of, you know, they don't want to have direct negotiations with the union. But of course, the stronger that it gets, maybe that's, you know, that's, that's where it's going to go. Well, finally, on this rather US-centric edition of the late edition, let's turn to another of the country's most hallowed or vilified institutions, depending on how you look at things. We're talking about the Central Intelligence Agency. It's rebranded itself. Its website boasts sleek new graphics with a rather snazzy logo that looks more like that of a left-of-mainstream micro-house club night than the logo of the world's third biggest and arguably second most feared intelligence agency. It seems a pretty explicit appeal to the nation's youth. At present, the agency is not particularly diverse, and it's clearly hoping to appeal to a wider pool of applicants by, and this is the words of its director, Gina Haspel, visually communicating the dynamic environment that awaits them here. Um, Chiara, you're the culture editor of Monocle, and the, I'm going to say you're the most visually literate amongst us. Um, what, what's your verdict? Pretty trendy, pretty snazzy, but is it, is, it, does it sort of hint at the dynamism that Gina was talking about? Well, it's interesting that, isn't it? The moment you say that something is dynamic, it's a little bit like saying travelling to a vibrant country. It's, it really is a red flag. Um, yes, I mean... It's really funny, isn't it? Anybody who's seen it will have been immediately struck by just how jarring it is. I'm not one necessarily, you know, for complete traditionalism and not one for never changing. And I, you know, applaud an ambition to diversify the workforce. But by doing something like this, again, you end up, uh, I guess you risk ending up again in that world of, kind of patronizing behavior, right? Where you're just so out of tune with the people that you're talking to that it looks like you're talking down at them. Um, I mean, I've I've found so many kind of funny comments about this on the internet because I'm also <laughs> down with oh, the Oh, you're kids. one of these young people, Kira, that yeah, I've been reading Yeah, indeed. Um, many of which liken it to, you know, a minimal techno flyer um, or inspired by, you know, Joy Div- famous Joy Division album cover, which I think is a bit too rarefied <laughs> reference. Um, yes, I... I think the the problem is that again if you if you look at the images for example of said diverse workforce on on the website um they really tend to look like you know stock imagery that seems disingenuous and not that it, and and also doesn't necessarily reflect the reality currently at the CIA as much as as much as you know um the, the Gina Haspel who is in fact the first female head of the CIA m- may want to represent it you know currently i've read reports that there's about 26% people of color in the workforce um it's great that we want to improve the situation, but let's also be mindful of not just signalling something hmm. and out of wishful thinking. Well, well, Chris, let me ask you about exactly that point. I wonder, you know, there's clearly going to be an issue when all of these uh, prospective applicants arrive to find the reality is slightly different than that what was promised in Gina's uh, ritzy graphics. But there's also this broader problem, perhaps, which that. You know, there's a gap, a gulf, if you like, between the, the, the digital, maybe the visual literacy of the generation of people who've commissioned this project and this work and this rebrand and those that they're trying to, to speak to. And you can't just paper over those cracks. Those kind of fissures are exposed quite profoundly, aren't they? And it takes, well, it can take a generation to kind of, to kind of uh, overcome that. 
Well, yeah, I think I think that's true to some degree. Of course, leave it now to the American to try and defend the CIA on the other side. <laughs> but I would I would say, you know, to to one of Chiara's last points, I don't think in in terms of the makeup of the CIA things aren't necessarily as bad as we might assume from the outside. Uh, in, in, in terms of diversity, to some degree, there are young people who work there. Maybe some of them uh, shrugged in horror at the new uh, design themselves. I did know many when I actually worked in Washington, D.C. myself. Um, and I, what I would say, actually, to take it maybe back uh, to to politics a little bit, I think it'll be interesting to see how this develops, of course, under Joe Biden and what kind of direction he is going to take uh, the CIA and the intelligence community. He has himself, of course, promised um, more diversity in his cabinet choices. There's actually a, a quite a significant uh, debate right now over who the next CIA head could be. Uh, Biden wanted to pick somebody, Michael Morell, who had pushed for enhanced interrogation techniques uh, or defended enhanced interrogation techniques under George W. Bush. This is now, um, you know, not particularly cool if we're if we're talking in in young people's terms, and uh, and many senators have tried to shrug him off, and now it might go to somebody uh, from a Treasury Department who specializes in financial sanctions and financial intelligence, David Cohen. Slightly cooler, maybe I don't know, but I for me, I would actually though I should say to end focus as uh, Kiara did on talking of Gina Haspel. Um, Actually, I would go one level further up under Joe Biden and look at Avril Haines, the new director of national intelligence who will be coming in. She's a brown belt in judo, bookstore owner, auto mechanic, physicist, and a pilot. Now, how much cooler can you get than that for a young person to look up to? Uh, a true polymath, by the sounds of things. Uh, Chris Chermak, great to hear from you, as always. That's Monocle's news editor, Chris Chermak. Thanks, too, to Chiara Rimella here in London, to all our editors today across Monocle 24, to our studio manager, Louis Allen, and the producer of today's late edition, Augustin Macellari. I'm Tom Edwards. That's all for today's programme. Thank you very much for tuning in.